as we prepare to launch and as you pray for us, uh, in two weeks we will start our series in First Peter. It's called Exile. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to just look at, and we'll get some of this tonight actually in a different context as we talk about gender. But the reality is that once upon a time in American life, Christianity was the center. And the church was the center of town. And, and you, everybody went to church and then back out into their homes and into their, uh, their communities, their living communities. And that has increasingly changed to where now Christianity is marginalized and we are on the fringe, we're on the periphery. And, uh, and so first Peter, Peter's writing to a group of Christians that are in exile. And I think it's a really significant book for us to consider as 21st century American Christians that increasingly we're on the periphery. We're not the mainstream of the culture. And so what does it look for us to live as exiles in this world? And so we'll be looking at that together. I hope that you'll join us. But tonight, we're going we're gonna to round out the last two talks of our series, Foundations in the Garden. And it's strange, this unprecedented time that we are living in, where men can be women, and women can be men, and down can be up, and up can be down. It's just crazy. Uh, it all started in the garden, when our first mother believed the lies of that serpent who enticed her with the idea that she could be like God. And our first father, he was right there and he went willingly. He followed her leadership instead of leading her away from temptation. We, we looked at that a couple of weeks ago. But the result is that we live now in a day and age where everybody is a little God unto themselves and we think that we can actually bend the very laws of nature, physics, and biology to suit our every whim and desire. Our world is totally upside down. One, one blogger that I, I happened upon wrote a satire piece that I think brilliantly exposes the ridiculousness of it all. So I'm just going to read you two paragraphs of his blog. I won't read the whole thing, but uh, he said, My wife is pregnant, and we recently went for an ultrasound, only to be unexpectedly assaulted by the worst kind of bigotry and close-mindedness that you could possibly imagine. This ultrasound technician observed uh, a particular piece of uh, uh, hardware via the ultrasound and declared right then and there, completely on her own and without any warning to us, that we were having a boy. I have never been so outraged in my whole life. Who is she to assume that that piece of hardware automatically means that our child is a boy? Who is she to assign gender based on something as meaningless and arbitrary as a reproductive organ. You can't just go around observing physical realities and drawing basic conclusions based on those. I'm overwhelmed with the bigotry and the transphobia. Now that's a really extreme, really satirical, really out there blog, but it's meant to make us chuckle because we think, surely nobody would be that ridiculous. But that is the world that we live in. Our culture is very dedicated to this false notion of gender equality, the way that we've come to understand it. We've been working for many years to, in, to achieve an androgynous utopia where women are treated like men and men are treated like women and there's no distinguishable difference between the sexes. And I fear that when it comes to the hearts and minds of the majority of our populace in the, in the culture, we're there, right? We've arrived. That's the place where we live every day. And, and to some... I'm just going to say this by way of disclaimer. To some people in the room tonight, my introduction to this topic of gender might seem disrespectful. And I have to say, I'm just really dumbfounded as to how that could be the case because I don't self-identify 
as disrespectful. <laughs> Just take a minute. Thank you. Yeah, we need the we need the snare hit there at that point. We, we've been in this series to this point, Foundations in the Garden. Everything that we've talked about has brought us to this week on gender. And next week again, we'll, we'll talk about sex. But we had to build the foundation first. We had to lay the foundation. The acknowledgement that this, this topic may actually be difficult for some of you, especially younger people, because some of you have uh, received an education or, or in a particular uh, stream in our culture, or you've uh, had particular experiences. And, and so throw the persuasive influence of the culture on top of that, and it's surprising that there's any Christian ethic left when, when regarding relationships and human sexuality. But that, that reality of what we live in out here in the world and in the media does not excuse us from wrestling with the truth contained in God's word, which applies to our lives. We're twice his. You understand? As a follower of Jesus Christ, you're not just made in his image. You're bought with his blood. You're twice his. And so we, we have to. We're compelled by the Spirit to wrestle with these things. And as I survey the culture, I, I find that there are two main <coughs> assumptions that I see that I think right out of the gate we need to address. And so let me just give them to you here. These two faulty assumptions. The first one is this, that, that a person's value somehow is tied to their beliefs. Those two things are are intertwined. So if someone believes differently than you do, and you want to try to convince them that they're wrong or to think otherwise, then this faulty assumption, this is what it will do. It will play out in the way that they begin to infer that you think that they're less valuable than you are. Because you disagree, or you think that they're wrong, or they'll take the inference that you think that I'm dumb, or you think that I'm stupid, or why would you try to convince me? And none of that's true at all. As Christians, we're moved by compassion, right? Or we should be. We're moved by a heart of compassion towards those who don't know Christ, who don't know the truth, to go to them and to present the gospel and to present truth to them. And in all actuality, this faulty assumption, number one, is grounded in naturalism, the belief in evolution. In that, right, if you believe in naturalism, all that is required is time plus information for you to move forward and evolve more. Therefore, a lack of knowledge is indeed, in that worldview, to be less than. To be less than. So it's an inference from naturalism. We reject naturalism and we believe Christian theism. That God created man in his image. Male and female, he made them. That's, that's a, I just said something really bigoted in our culture. You understand? Right? But, but the reality is every man, woman, and child is made in the image of God and has intrinsic value by virtue of that reality, not based on our intelligence, not based on our belief system, but simply by virtue that we're made in his image. And this is an essential truth for us to remember if we want to restore any civility to the debate, to the discussion that's raging around us. So here's the other faulty assumption. Number two, any distinctions in role inherently mean inequality. This is a faulty assumption. In other words, real unity... And real equality only come through uniformity. Which is why there's a push for androgyny. That's why there's a push to do away with the distinction. Because the only way we can truly be equal, to truly have equality, 
as if there's no difference at all. This, this idea is simply foolishness. There will always be hierarchy. There will always be authority structures. There will always be differing roles in job descriptions. It is completely unavoidable in real life. To deny that is to deny reality. But then again, that seems to be the way things are going, right? And so the argument goes like this. Well, then why would you even draw attention to those things? To those differing roles? To the fact that some people are in authority over other people? Why would you even draw attention? What makes it, why do you make it about who has what job or who has what role in the church or in the home? And the response is, I agree. What does it matter? What does it matter what one does if everybody's equal in value? So why do the feminists continue to make the issue about women in certain jobs such a big deal? Or why did they continue to import, downplay the importance of being a stay-at-home mom? If we're really equal in value, let's just turn the question around, right? Let's just, if they really believe that we're all equal, there'd be no, there would be freedom to embrace that reality that not everyone could or even should do all the same things because their value <coughs> is not defined or determined by what they do. If we really believe that. But you see, we've had a steady stream of indoctrination culturally. Let me, let me just give you an example, okay? In 1979, a leading sociology textbook used in some colleges nationwide, it, it became mainstream in the early 80s, had three main points in chapter one about human sexuality. These are the three main points. This is 1979, okay? We are born asexual, neither hetero nor homosexual in nature. A person's born asexual. This is a sociology textbook. Number two, Children's sex is determined by labels placed on them by their parents before two years of age. And number three, all our sexual behavior, all of our sexual identity is learned and is affected by our environment. None of it is innate. None of it is something that we're born with. It's all environmental that determines that. Now, that was 1979, and I was five years old. And I, and I, I don't think things have improved. I don't think things have gotten moved back towards God's standard of right and true. I think we've only moved further away from it, right? And if we're going to deal with this issue, we have to reject these faulty assumptions. But we also have to embrace two right principles that are going to guide our discussion. And here they are. Number one, we have to avoid looking at the biblical teaching on gender piecemeal. We can't just go to one text that we prefer and say, this is what Scripture says. Because they're going to do the same thing. They're going to go to another text and say, but this is what Scripture says. And we have to be intentional. See, in past generations, theologians have been very prone to isolating a text and then interpreting that with certain presuppositions. And if they're a bad theologian, their presuppositions are cultural. And if they're a good theologian, their presuppositions are, are biblical. Right? But, but they, they do this, and then there's battles back and forth. And so this is what every side does all the way back to David and Goliath. This side says, well, we're going to trot out our champion. And this sociologist says this. And then the other side says, well, we're going to trot out our champion. And this theologian says this. And nobody gets anywhere. Because we're just looking at certain texts. And so we have to rediscover and embrace the larger context of the whole of the redemptive narrative to see how these issues are painted by that cumulative whole of Scripture. What does Scripture say, right? That's number one. Here's number two. We must be very careful not to embrace the notion that male headship or leadership is merely a result of the fall. 
That is a very common assertion that is made in our day. But the Apostle Paul didn't think so. Uh, Just read 1 Timothy 2 and 3. He argued that male headship was embedded in God's design of creation. It preceded the fall of man. Additionally, as we read the Genesis 2 text, which we will in just a moment, we find that woman was created from man and for man. And those who claim that the man assumes authority after the fall and as a result of the fall have not, in my opinion, adequately answered the points raised in the text prior to the fall. Or all the references in the New Testament. The New Testament takes that picture of marriage, Adam and Eve, the first marriage. It says this is what the church and Jesus are like as we wait for him to come back. And so it's not just an Old Testament Genesis thing. It's a New Testament the church is the bride of Christ. He's the head of the church. He's the bridegroom thing. So before we go into more of the Bible a little more deeply on this, so if you have Genesis open, stick your finger in chapter 2. I want to give you some non-biblical support for binary gender distinctions. Just for funsies. Just for funsies. Here's a little physiology lesson for you. Number one, the plumbing's different. And we'll just leave it there. <laughs> Self-evident, okay? Um, in men, males, average 10% higher metabolic rate than women. Average 35 to 50% more muscle mass than women. Which is when, which when guys decide to go trans and then sneak back into the MMA as a woman fighter, they beat everybody. They beat all the other women. You guys know the story? Fox... Uh, what's his name? He's a guy. No? No? Okay. So there's a, there's a 2015, this guy who, now a woman, won an MMA championship bout because he beat the snot out of him, gave a concussion and broke the orbital eye socket of uh, his female <coughs> opponent because he now he's a woman. But he has 35 to 50% more muscle mass. So, yeah, he's going to win. Um, guys have denser, stronger bones, tendons, and ligaments. Guys, unfortunately, have more sweat glands, so we stink more. We dissipate heat faster. 30% greater lung capacity on average and larger parts, which pump a larger volume of blood, which creates more friction internally, which results in a higher average body temperature, which is why your wife sticks her icy feet on you when you're in bed, because you're hot and she's not, right? On average. Or maybe that's just autobiographical. I don't know. More salivary glands, we have bigger teeth, guys, and faster digestive systems, which assimilate more protein better and more quickly. But we don't have all the advantages. So women, uh, just a couple of things, and I, and I didn't go a long laundry list on women's, uh, the, the ways in which you're more uh, advanced, I would just say, in some ways, because it was so much longer. But I'll give you a couple. Uh, thicker layer of subcutaneous fat, which acts as an insulator and an energy reserve. Guys typically don't have that. Women can withstand cold better. Women have more stored and circulating white blood cells. They produce more antibodies, and they fight infections better than guys do. All the talk, I hate it on Facebook about, this is what it's like when mom has a cold, and she's like still going about her business. And this is what it's like when dad has a cold, and there's like 15 nurses around the bed, you know. It's, like, <laughs> it's true. Right? Women just have better immune systems, and think about it, moms with small children and play dates and kids going to school and coming home bringing all that crud back home, moms have better immune systems 
And they don't succumb to sickness as easily as men do. And, and again, longer list for the ladies. I just didn't, I didn't import all of that into my talk tonight. <clears throat> my favorite difference, non-biblical, physiological distinction, is a neurological distinction. It's uh, a part of the brain, so you have two hemispheres of the brain, right? Right and left. And then in between them, you have this connection called the corpus callosum. And the corpus callosum is the, is the connection point for the two hemispheres of the brain communicating back and forth. And, and when, a, when a baby's in the womb at about 16 weeks, when, when the sex is determined, in a boy, there's a wash of the hormone testosterone. And what that does, one of the adverse effects of that, I say adverse, is uh, God's design, it's not bad. But what happens is in a guy, so the, the, the corpus callosum is as large as the two hemispheres where they connect. But when that testosterone bath happens, it shrinks down to about the size of a silver dollar. And in men, the corpus callosum is about that big. And in women, the corpus callosum is about this big. And so what, what that means is men and women, that we think differently, right? Women, uh, well, guys first. Guys think in a logical succession, right? Thought, thought, thought. Think, think like a knotted rope, okay? Thought, hungry, small animal. <laughs> Kill the small animal. <laughs> Eat the small This is how guys think, right? It's very, very linear. Women have a big corpus callosum, and so all these points, they assimilate information much better, and they, they process information much more quickly. And so women have thought, 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 and they're all connected. <laughs> and so you guys, right? We're talking, we're having a conversation with a woman in our lab, talking, 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 and she's like, Totally different subject. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's because of the, it's this. On the other side, guys, we have a nothing box. We can actually go to the nothing box. What are you thinking about? Nothing. And for the woman, she's like, that's not even possible. They're like, no, I'm totally there. I'm not thinking about anything right now. It's awesome. <laughs> Right? It's because of this neurological, <coughs> physiological difference. And so this is, I think, what, it, what accounts for things like women's intuition, right? The, the women can process and make decisions, and they just sense things, and they just, I don't think that's a good, good idea, and I can't really articulate why. And it's like, okay, I'm learning, like, 17 years of marriage, trust that, because she's processing more information than my brain can right now. These, these are all, we can cover sex differences at birth, we can talk about sex differences in stress management, psychological differences, sociological differences, and tons of other data. The time just simply won't allow us. Suffice it to say this, men and women are different from one another and distinct from one another, right? So let's just look at the biblical view on this. I want to just turn to Genesis 2, uh, verses 7 and 8, and then 15 to 25. And just try to keep a running count of your respective gender, as mentioned, man, woman, male, female here. You get the idea of God's trying to communicate something. Verse 7, Genesis 2, Then the Lord formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Skip to 15. 
The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and had brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. And the man gave names to all the livestock, and to all the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs, and he closed up his place with flesh, and that rib the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Best nap ever. <laughs> and then the man said, verse 23, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked. And they were not ashamed. Now, if you don't take anything else away from the text of Genesis 2, understand that God made two physical human beings who are equal in worth and value, but he made them distinct in gender and in role. He made them male and female. He gave them different job descriptions while valuing them equally. That concept in Christianity is called complementarity. It's the idea that God made us to complement one another. In the converged circles that I run in in church planning, we talk about we're better together. Right? That's the idea of marriage. It's the idea of male and female. We're better together. Right? God gave them uh, different job descriptions. And this is referred to, again, complementarity. The inverse of complementarity is a system called egalitarianism. And that is when men and women are equal. And because they're equal, the assumption is they have to be equal in everything. In their role, in their calling, there can't be any distinction without a loss of equality. That's egalitarianism. And do you see that assumption from earlier? You see the assumption: if we disagree, we must not be any, must not have equal value. It's there. It's at work. It's at work. So let me give you uh, my understanding. Some some definitions here. We talk about masculinity and femininity. And I'll apologize in advance because my definition of biblical masculinity is a little more fleshed out because my dude, and I've been thinking about this for a long time, and I've done a lot of men's ministry. And so there'll be more uh, to the, the definition of biblical manhood here. It's not a slight against the ladies. It's just that um, I haven't spent enough time with some of you to get your input on what should be the definition, right? So we just move along here to the masculinity. Um, not an exhaustive definition. There may be more to masculinity and femininity, but there's certainly not less. So here's, here's masculinity. As a man who's made in the image of God, I'm called to the glad assumption of responsibility. To lead courageously, to love sacrificially, to make war on sin, to safeguard the weak, to protect and serve wholeheartedly and nurture a passion for Christ and those around me and under my care. To attain to the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. We'll draw some key words for you here. Glad. Glad assumption. Willful. Having a sense of calling. Having a sense of duty. 
that is fulfilled in the taking up of the mantle of manhood. And, and that phrase, the assumption of responsibility, is a calling from God. It's not some right that we have as men to take by force for us to exercise our own self-exaltation or our own <clears throat> That's not what's in view. It's a duty from God, an obligation, and a charge from our Heavenly Father. It is benevolent leadership that Jesus models for us. Wanting only good for those who have been given under our care. So we talked about leading courageously, and we looked at Jesus and his example in leadership. He would serve instead of lord it over people. And, and he would mobilize people and encourage strength in other people and build them up. And, and he was initiating love and direction and relationship and accepting the burden and the consequences of his decision making. That's biblical manhood. Because there's no better dude than Jesus, right? Protect and serve. We, we've had this motto in our house since the boys were born. I just decided at birth, this will be the motto. Boys protect girls. Boys protect girls. Always. And now that they're teenagers, we've modified the motto. Boys protect girls, even if it means you have to protect them from yourself. Right? That's the reality of manhood. Vic Doss, my, my good friend back in Georgia, says this. He says, real men reject passivity, accept responsibility, lead courageously, and expect the greater reward. We're deferring our desires, our fulfillment right now for the sake of what's to come. We're going to make the sacrifice play. That's the call of biblical manhood. Here's the biblical feminine definition. Freeing disposition to receive, affirm, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in appropriate ways. There's a ton in this that we won't unpack, but let me just give you three things. The freeing disposition. Ladies, it's not a set of rules. It's a spiritual, relational bent that expresses itself as you, as you bend. Your flesh will be rigid and your spirit will want to bend to this. As we bend, um, it expresses itself in a myriad of forms. There's not a, it has to look like this every time, all the time, just like this. It's, it's, a, it's a fluid reality, a freeing disposition in your spirit to receive and affirm, right? To advocate for, to submit to masculine headship. When, there's some qualifiers, when it's exercised rightly in God-honoring ways, to recognize it's natural and godly, and, to, and with gladness of heart to say, I'm glad that God has placed worthy men in my life, my husband, right? Strength and leadership. Doesn't mean that women are not strong. Doesn't mean that women are never to lead. Right? So just don't, don't let your heart go there. There's so much here in this definition. Uh, we, we talk about the phrase in, inappropriate ways. When I was uh, having my last young adult group at my last church, we we're talking through this stuff in a series, and the ladies were coming to me afterwards going, Does that mean I have to submit to every guy in church all the time and do whatever they tell me to do? I'm like, No. No, that's crazy. You don't. Every guy suddenly has the authority to... It's just, no. No, don't think that, right? So, um, if you have questions about this, please come see me. Let's talk more about it. I'd love to have coffee and do that. Let's talk roles in the home for just a minute. Just, just to revisit, right? God made two equal beings in value. He made them distinct and different in gender. He made the male and female, husband and wife, father, mother... 
and gave them different roles, different job descriptions, while valuing them equally. And so God's intention and design for gender extends far beyond biology. And it has nothing to do with what we feel at any given moment. Nothing at all. God gave the man the primary responsibility to lead that partnership within the marriage covenant in God-glorifying directions. And so you read Paul in Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 33. Paul says this, by the Spirit of God, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. That's a tough opening verse. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church's body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ is the church, because we're members of his body. Therefore, now see, we're going to punt back to Genesis here. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You see, insecurity entered into our existence at the fall. And so uh, the, the question, we, we have these questions that largely go unanswered in our hearts, right? And it's different between a guy and a girl. The questions that we ask as we grow up was amazing to me, astounding uh, the boys came out of the womb and into the air, breathing, crying, and ready to wrestle. They were broad-shouldered little mini-people going, where's dad? Let's wrestle. Because the heart of a boy wants to know one thing. Do I have what it takes to be a man? I mean, from day one, pitting their strength against dad, which at this phase of 16 and 14 and the largeness of my boys becomes dangerous for dad. <laughs> right? I've been I've been pulling my punches and now I'm like, ah, I wish you would pull yours. <laughs> but this is the reality. Do I have what it takes? The question at the heart of every man, do I have what it takes to be a man? And God graciously gives us a standard on which to answer the question. In this passage, three verses for the ladies, nine for the men. The burden here for, for husbands is squarely laid on the men. The headship here is a model of Christ himself who gave himself up for our sakes. You see, male headship was not imposed upon Eve as a result of the fall. The curse that was pronounced was man's toil, his inherent laziness, and his propensity to abdicate his authority. And the women's desire to usurp the man's role and also painful childbirth. Sorry, I wasn't there. I didn't have anything to do with that. But the question at the heart of the boy is, do I have what it takes? Do I have what it takes to be a man? And guys, 
me just say to you as an aside, we have to answer that for our sons. Our wives can't answer that. Women can't answer that. The culture will try to answer that. We have to answer that. We need to know where we're taking our boys by the time they're 18 or 19 or 20 so that when they get there, we can say, you have arrived. You are a man. We need to do that. That's on us, guys. That's on us. Ladies, the question at the heart of every little girl is, am I loved? Am I desirable? Am I, am I wanted? Am I worth fighting for? And it's so nefarious and so evil how the world takes that reality. Satan knows the questions that every heart is asking. He twists the answers. He twists it in our culture to lead us away from the knowledge of the true and living God and into deception and sin. And so the world tells ladies, if you want to be accepted, if you want to be loved, you have to look like this. You have to be beautiful in this way. It's all about the external. And this issue of beauty becomes tangled up in the question in the heart of every girl. And again, Scripture gives us clarity. Go to 1 Peter 3 and listen to the words of Peter. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word. Underline that phrase, right? Without a word. <laughs> By the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, putting on gold jewelry, the clothing that you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of a quiet heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women of old who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham. Let's just stop right there. Not a great track record, Abraham. Twice. Same fiasco. We're in foreign land. I'm worried they're going to take me. I'm worried they're going to kill me. Let's lie about it. Twice. So, understand, God knows, ladies, that you married a turkey. My, my wife did too. But that's not, that's not the, nobody gets a, oh, I, I get out of jail free. I married a turkey. Didn't happen. Listen, look, look here. Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling the Lord, and you are her daughters. You're her children, ladies. If you do good, and don't fear anything that's frightening. We'll come back to that phrase. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Weaker vessel. Don't be insulted, ladies. Think of it like this. When I was in Minsk, Belarus in 1999, I bought a, a, a Belarusian crystal a decanter and six uh, vases, nice little flutes, all just really nice crystal. And I brought them home. I carried them in my lap for 12 hours on the plane. And when I married Jen, she, we got those, right? That was for us. Those are just kind of a cool thing that we have. And so here's the picture of Weaker Vessel. Is guys, you're on the work site, and you're on the third floor of the building that your construction firm is building, and you have your stainless steel thermos, and you accidentally bump it with your foot, and it falls into the rubble pile, and it's got a dent in it. And you go down, and you pick it up, and you unscrew the top, and you drink your coffee, and you put it back on, and you go about your business. That's the dude. She's the crystal. She's the Belarusian crystal. You don't even take her on the job site. And if she falls from that same height, she's going to shatter. Right? This is something to be valued, something to be precious, something to be important. 
It's not, it's not a hit on ladies. It's actually elevating their importance and their, their showing honor to them, right? But let's go back to the frightening thing. Well, let's go back to Genesis 1. God's commission was to have dominion over the earth. Male and female work together uh, practically through marriage, and part of that is multiply, be fruitful and multiply. And, and so and a man needs to be the head of the home for God, and the woman needs to help him fulfill that divine calling. He needs her. I need Jen, okay? But back to the issue of beauty here. Scripture says, ladies, don't let your beauty be outward only when you read this. Uh, the page does not forbid outward beauty. It doesn't mean that you can't look nice, or that you can't braid your hair, or that you can't wear gold jewelry, because the next phrase would be a no-no too, which is wearing clothes. I don't think that's what Scripture teaches. <laughs> so, the, so the idea is, don't let that be the way that you express your beauty primarily. The thing that in God's view is very beautiful and very precious is when you have a gentle and quiet spirit. And you don't have to be the one always saying that and always... My wife, just talk to her. She knows. Like, it's a fearful thing to live under male headship. I can, as a church planner, my, my attitude about life is, let's make the decision. If it's the wrong one, we'll deal with it next week. That's terrifying. That's terrifying, right? But th there's, a, there's a sovereignty and a goodness of God over the covenant marriage. And, and so, ladies, let your heart be in alignment with the Holy Spirit. And as a husband, I recommend you take some effort to be beautiful for your husband. And, and, and you do, ladies, many of you do. If this were a blanket prohibition against the items in the passage, right, we have to walk around naked because clothes is on the list. But the passage is saying that your beauty and loveliness is the, the very basis of what defines your femininity. It's your heart, not everything on the outside. It's your heart. Is it founded and grounded in the character of God, fueled by the Holy Spirit in a relationship with Him? Right? And, and so the way that manifests itself is the S word. That we dare not speak in the culture war. Submission. The way that this manifests is submission. We passed over it in the Ephesians passage, but we can't afford not to look at it now. So let me just give you a couple of things that submission does not mean. It does not mean putting a husband in the place of Jesus. It does not mean you have to give up independent thought or the ability to give God for yourself. Submission does not mean giving up efforts to give input and influence in your marriage or giving in to every demand from your husband. That's not what submission means. Submission does not mean that you're less intelligent, less competent, that you're fearful or timid in any way. In fact, I would argue the opposite. If you can submit to your husband, you're actually very courageous. I know, I know the dudes in the room. I know what I'm talking about. Submission is an inner quality of gentleness that affirms the leadership of the husband in the home. And Sarah is given as the example by Peter to the wives that he's writing to, trusting God to work through the man despite his track record. If you do that, which is frightening, right? That's what that means. Peter's point is that submission in the home is beautiful and it's right and it pleases God. Equal value, different roles. Equal value, different job descriptions. When I go into the garage, just this afternoon I built ramps for the trailer. I'm very proud of my ramps. There's like a two-inch drop off the back of the, the back door, and I smooth the whole thing out. So cool. I'm so proud of my ramps. They're actually pretty basic. And anybody that actually does woodworking would come along and go like, what is that? Right? But I'm really proud of my ramps. 
And, and so when I went into the garage to build the ramps, I needed my power drill and I needed my hammer. And I went to my toolbox and I got both of those tools. And I needed the hammer for some things that I was doing and I needed the power drill for the other things that I was doing. And I, and I dare not use the hammer for the things that I needed the power drill for. Now you can hammer a screw into wood, but it's ugly. And you can try to use your power drill as a hammer with a nail, but you're going to break the power drill. See, those, those tools were designed for particular jobs. And I don't hold up my hammer in this hand and my power drill in this hand and go, you're more valuable to me. Away with you, hammer. They're both valuable tools. They're just needed for different jobs. And when I try to use the wrong tool for the wrong job, I end up destroying the tool and mangling the job. You follow me? God made men and women different. When, when, when women try to do the things that men should do, it, it, it never goes well. So they might pull it off for a while, but it, it, it's not the way the tool is designed to work. Same, same thing, the inversion of that, right? We, we honor God when we, when we operate in the way that he's designed us to operate, and Scripture tells us what those parameters are. Um, so we talked about roles in the home, uh, I'll just say this about roles in the church. I had originally planned to give us more time for us to look at 1 Timothy 2 and 3, um, which makes it clear that those who are called and qualified for the office of pastor elder in the church are supposed to be men and not women. But again, this is a reflection of the created order, not the fall. And so we talk about the office of pastor and elder and, and the ministries that are available to women, which the list of that is absolutely everything in the church except for the role of pastor and elder. And so here's the key point to take away from this as we talk about gender as it relates to roles in the church. When women fixate on this situation and point to it as being unfair that we can't be pastors and elders, ladies, I say we, I didn't mean that. I mean you. <laughs> Just in tune with my feminine. <laughs> when, when, when can't, you can't be a pastor elder you've returned to the garden of Eden and once again are looking at the one thing that you cannot have instead of enjoying freely the vast goodness that God has placed in front of you when you're consumed with that one thing in the church I can't be pastor elder and that consumes your thoughts and it makes you bitter and frustrated you've returned to the garden and you're looking at the tree going but I want that it's the one thing God said you can't have. So you can choose to fixate on that, or you can choose to walk in the vastness and the goodness of all that God has given you. <coughs> and that choice is yours. The choice is yours. Lastly, let us avoid of speaking of these things in terms of tradition. As we wrap up tonight, I just want to challenge you. Don't, don't make the mistake of talking about tradition or traditional norms or traditional marriage. When we do that, we play into the hands of those who oppose us, and we allow them to easily dismiss us. Let us, in turn, speak about biblical marriage and biblical norms. I realize that the vast majority of people outside of these walls do not recognize the authority of the Bible. And it's just as true that there are many in the church who fail to recognize that authority as well. Let's not be among them in terms of what we believe. It's, it's, it's true. You see, the Bible never tells men to take out the garbage, that that's the man's job. You won't find it. You're not going to find that anywhere in Scripture. Or that a gentleman will hold the door for a lady. Or that a true man will give up his seat for a lady. Right? It's not in Scripture. But 
to argue that because it's not in Scripture means it's not right is to miss the point entirely. You see, the Bible does spell out the concept of honor. And then it tells men to honor women. You see, the Bible does spell out what submission looks like and then tells women to submit to their husbands as unto the Lord. See, when Scripture tells me to love my wife, I'm not given any instructions as to what to get her for our anniversary, although that would be wonderful. <laughs> or which restaurant she prefers to go to. It's always trial and error, mostly error, when we have that conversation. Guys, you know, I mean, it's like, where do you want to go? Oh, I don't care where you want to go. Okay, let's go here. No, not that. <laughs> All right, well, then let's go over this place. No, I don't know about that. <laughs> right? You're laughing because we have this conversation. <laughs> There's nothing in Scripture about that. Every day in a relationship, um, Scripture is speaking to how we are to represent Jesus in those relationships, particularly our marriages, particularly our homes. But even beyond those four walls, our, our spouses and our children uh, being in view there, but strangers, extended family. Friends in the church, people that we know in the workplace, Scripture speaking to us about how we relate, and we must stand on those truths, and we must operate on those principles, because nothing else is going to work. And so I'll just end with this. You can take this thought with you into your week. The world is cool-shaming us. Yeah, that's a thing. Cool-shaming? Anybody? It's a thing, right? Um, you, know, you know how it works in school, the cool kids? And, and if they want to shame you, you're ostracized. You're put on the periphery. You're laughed at. You're called names. You see, whenever the real God is jettisoned from the culture, new gods are imposed. And this happens by means of sanctions. Sanctions are uh, taking away trade and commerce. And, and, uh, and the currency that we trade in as a culture is the currency of cool. And so to be sanctioned is to be shamed by all the cool cultural kids out there. Now, you, you may laugh. I think I'm overstating the case. But just look at what happens in the media when women march in Washington, D.C. and people march for the right to life. Cool shame. But when women march for what they want to march for the week prior, it's the greatest event in the history of mankind. So the debate is not really about whether or not you believe in the old God or the new ones. The debate is about really whether you believe in the sanctions. Whether you'll be conformed when threatened with being marginalized or being labeled intolerant. And so, listen, if it comes about that your children or your grandchildren at some point have believed in and embraced the new gods, it will only be because you have believed and accepted the sanctions. It will only be because of our capitulation to this. You see, those who would discipline us are deadly serious. And if they get us to accept and fear their sanctions upon us, it will be our fault. I suggest instead that we stand and we laugh at their gods. We hold them in derision, just like God himself does in Psalm 2, as they plot to throw off his restrictions and chains. It's just God laughs. It's like, really? You think you're going to mount an assault against me? You think you're going to overthrow my sovereignty? <laughs> That's hilarious. These are those who have been degrading public discourse for at least a generation. 
pushing vulgarity in every form of media, blaspheming in the art and music, and demanding not only that we accept their filth, but embrace it. And then they turn around and say, anybody who doesn't accept their agenda is immoral? We should laugh at that. Where do they give any concept of morality? On what basis? You see, this is all about the new gods. And in rebelling against the one true and living God, he has turned them over to their lusts and to their own desire to be God. And now the delusion is complete. They believe that they are and that they can bend space and time and nature to their will and redefine reality. It is the ultimate psychosis. And so we pray for God to intervene. We pray for the courage and the fortitude to stand and to speak the unpopular truth. We pray for salvation to come and to break into every hardened heart despite every sign of rejection. We pray that God would use us despite our weakness. We pray. Let's do that. God, we come to you because we recognize that um, even in our collective strength as the church in the culture, we do not have the fortitude to overcome what we're facing. And so we pray uh, the, the words of Psalm 83, verse 16, which says this. Lord, fill their faces with shame. Fill their faces with shame. Uh, how, how vivid the picture is for me right now, raising a puppy. It is to take that puppy over to what that's just done in the kitchen and, and put its nose right in it. Fill their faces with shame. Put their nose right in the filth that they're making to teach them a lesson. And the next part of the verse says, so that they may seek the name of the Lord. Lord, the end game is that we want to see people's hearts broken and repentant and turning to you. And as long as their hearts are beating and their lungs are breathing air, we, we say it's not too late, Lord. Pour out grace in us and through us to them. May many come to know Jesus. God, we submit ourselves to you. Uh, forbid it that we should be deceived in this day and be led astray. Help us to stay close to you, filled with your spirit, feeding upon your word. God, we love you. We ask for the strength and fortitude from you. Even right now, even in this moment, as we go back into our week in the morning, Lord, give us strength. In Jesus' name, amen.